0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is January 9th, 2020. I'm recording this from my office here in Mountain Home, Tennessee. Today we're going to talk about uh, some safety signals, uh, some 6MP hepatotoxicity mitigation strategies, and some FDA updates. So let's talk about safety signals. So. When you hear the term safety signal, what comes to mind? Uh, and Where have you heard this before? So where it comes to mind for me is you're reading you know, the abstract of a, of a new study, uh, and usually the conclusion, like the last sentence, will say something like this. Regiment A should promise an activity in, fill in the blank, disease state, with no new safety signals. So what is a safety signal? Well, it's basically a warning sign, which by the way, Coldplay song from uh, uh, my favorite Coldplay album, which is Rush of Blood of the Head. But it's a warning sign that maybe there is something more concerning going on here. Uh, one of the early ones that I think of in my career was When One of the very first studies with enzalutamide showed you know, like a 2 to 4%, uh, I'm quoting from memory here, and that's probably not right, like risk of seizure. And everybody was worried, does this drug cause seizures? And every study since then showed a lower rate of seizures than it was reported. So that was a safety signal that maybe didn't quite come to fruition as something that we really need to worry about. So in uh, a recent issue of The Oncologist, the journal, Janice Kim and colleagues from FDA have analyzed all the hemong drug approvals from 2010 to 2016 uh, and looking at safety signals that arise after these drugs are approved. So from 2010 to 2016, 55 new Hemonc drugs. So this is not like an appro- an extended approval for a previously approved drug. These are brand new drugs. This runs from Cabazitaxel to Rucaparib. So 55 drugs, 32 were approved via the regular approval route, 23 via Accelerate approval. So f- during that seven-year period, 40% of the Hemonc drugs were accelerated approval. Now, if you just look at 2014 through 2016, that three-year period, the most recent three-year period I analyzed, it's actually 54% from accelerated approval. And that's certainly uh, a trend that seems to be happening is more and more of our drugs, more and more Oncopharm agents are approved under the accelerated approval pathway. So uh, nine of these 55 drugs or 16% had a safety signal that arose after the drug was approved. Now, this could have been a new REMS program, like in the case of ponatinib. could have been a new boxed warning or a new uh, warning precaution statement. And the FDA FDA would have sent out a dear doctor letter saying, hey, there's this new concern we're worried about. We want you to know about this. Why didn't we know about this when the drug was first studied? Well, that's kind of what happens when you improve... uh, you know, drugs based on studies of only hundreds of patients, the side effects that happen in one in a thousand, you're not going to see probably until you test it in a couple thousand patients. Um, so if we look further at these safety signals, if we look at those 32 drugs who approved via the regular approval pathway, one of 32 or 3% had a safety signal uh, afterwards, whereas eight of the 23 drugs approved in the accelerated approval process, 35%, so over a third had a safety or warning. Now, panatinib was a big offender. A whole bunch of the warnings were for panatinib. Now, the time from approval to the safety signal update. So when the F, when FDA updated the package insert, I'm going to read these in order. And these are not just the drugs. These are you know, like panatinib has four of these numbers, for example. So this is months from a drug approval to update in the package insert. So 5, 10, 12, 12, 12, 12, 16, 20, 23, 23, 24, and 24. So the median time from approval to a new safety signal coming out from the FDA was 16 months. So in general, you're talking one to two years after a drug is approved until we get some idea maybe of is there some new toxicity we need to be more worried about? Or maybe it's a toxicity we knew about, but it's more prevalent than we originally thought, which is why it gets a boxed warning or something like that. So the worst of these drugs was panatinib, which actually was withdrawn from the market for a period of time and was reintroduced with a REMS program because of the vascular occlusion MI strokes Bad stuff. The most impactful, maybe, was pembrolizumab, which had a warning, precaution added for immune-mediated interkinopathies and infusion reactions. Atezolizumab um, had a warning added for myocarditis, and we know, we now know that with immunotherapy, that these cardiovascular, immune-related adverse events are uh, very uh, have a high risk of mortality when they present and are maybe underrecognized. So, so certainly important. And we talk a lot about new drugs on this podcast. It's kind of what we do. New drug comes out, we're going to talk about it right away so everyone knows what to look for. So keep this in mind when we talk about the safety information. When a drug is approved based on 80 patients, you know, if there's a side effect that has an incidence of 1%, there's a good chance we haven't seen it yet because we haven't looked in that many patients to see if that side effect is there. Um, So keep that in mind. And, you know, when it comes to new drugs that are out there, uh, if you see something, say something in the form of a case report and a uh, MedWatch reporting or the the FAERS database, you know, let people know that you're seeing something, something odd, so that we all can learn and better take care of our patients. Now, it's not just new drugs where we're learning stuff or recently approved drugs where we're learning how to to uh, take care of patients in a safer way with using chemotherapy. It's also older drugs. So, this was probably last summer. I was uh, I was in clinic, and one of my APPE students. The way I kind of run my clinic rotation, which I do two months out of the year, is Students will work up a patient, they'll go talk to them, uh, and they'll come, you know, report back to me, this is what I found when I went through the drugs with them. And this was a patient with some rheumatologic condition, I can't remember if it was RA or something, and was being worked up in clinic for CLL or follicular lymphoma or some puffy lymph nodes or something like that. Didn't actually have a cancer diagnosis, but we talked about, you know, people with RA, you know, these rheumatologic conditions, they have a higher rate of lymphomas and this sort of stuff. And my student reports to me. Oh, and the patient's on azathioprine and allopurinol, and there's a drug interaction. Like, okay, that's a good catch. Um, who prescribed the allopurinol? Well, I don't know. So, okay, we'll go back in and see who's prescribing the allopurinol. Does the patient have gout? Student didn't know. Went back and found this out. And the rheumatologist prescribed both the azathioprine and allopurinol. And the issue here is that azathioprine is really a prodrug for 6MP which is partially metabolized by xanthine oxidase, Allopurinol blocks. Xanthine oxidase can increase the risk of um, hematologic toxicity of 6-MP. And usually there's a dose reduction that goes with this. Now, um, my first instinct, my gut instinct, was physician did something wrong. But then another instinct said, well, physicians usually know what they're doing. There's probably a reason for this. Let me look into this. So I PubMed this, and I find that there are some data in rheumatology, in the rheumatologic literature, that using can decrease the hepatotoxicity of 6-MP. And um, that's kind of where it ended for me. And in fact, if you go into some good drug interaction databases, which is kind of one of my areas of research, you can find this drug interaction listed at the increased toxicity, but also that it might decrease hepatotoxicity. Okay, well, that's kind of where it ended for me. Luckily, that's not where it ended for other folks. So uh, the publication I will refer you to is by Austin Stuckert and colleagues, including Brooke uh, Bernhardt, who's a good follow on Twitter, and the title of this article is "Use of Allopurinol to Reduce Hepatotoxicity from 6MP in Patients with ALL," published in Leukemia and Lymphoma as a letter to the editor. So the reason I stop with me is these other folks are smarter than I am, uh, but we don't see uh, a whole lot of ALL, and we don't treat children with ALL. So this is, um, you know, a brief study of 19 patients. So let me run through maybe the background science here. So 6MP is metabolized by several different pathways. Um, and I won't get into all the different pathways, but the end result is you get 6-thioguanine, six 6-TG, six which has some leuke- anti-leukemia activity, and then you get 6-MMPN, which is 6 nucleotides, and that end product we think is hepatotoxic, and you can actually measure the ratio of 6-TG to 6-MMPN, and the higher the ratio in favor of 6-MMPN, it appears to be the greater the risk of hepatotoxicity, and this is... Described in the rheumatology literature, and based on uh, this study just recently reported, uh, there are a couple case reports in ALL. So this looks to be the first uh, quote study looking at this. Now it's only 19 patients, retrospective chart review looking at it, and essentially. When they had kids, these are all kids. In fact, most of them, 58% were Hispanic, uh, which makes sense if you consider this was Houston. So 19 patients with ALL um, that had a 6 MMPN to 6 TG ratio above 20, usually with some like grade two transaminitis, so talking LFTs, three to five times the upper limit, normals, like 100 to 200. Um, And then a high white count, because the goal here with 6 MP is we want to keep that ANC below like 1,500, like 1,000 to 1,500 if my memory serves, you know, for like two years along with the methotrexate. So the theory here is that some people, based on, you know, probably their, their pharmacogenomic profile, metabolize the drug differently and end up with a higher concentration of these hepatotoxic metabolites. Maybe it's higher in Hispanic patients. Don't probably too early to say that with just 19 patients. Um, so what they did is they put these patients on allopurinol, 50 milligrams per meter squared, along with a 50% reduction in the dose of 6MP because of that drug interaction and the risk of hematologic toxicity. And what they found is that these patients were able to have their LFTs go down over a period of months, were able to uh, tolerate 6MP at varying doses, and uh, you know didn't have to stop the drug because of this hepatotoxicity, which is great and not quite in the end because we're talking 9 to 60 months of follow-up, but 17 to 19 patients, or basically 90%, were disease-free. So bravo, great work. You know, all the elements were in the literature. They did this, went back retrospectively and wrote this up. So certainly something to think about if you encounter patients, kids with ALL on their maintenance 6MP and are having transaminitis, you got to pull this study from leukemia and lymphoma and talk about it with your docs and think about doing this uh, for the kids. Okay, so those are the big kind of safety signal things I want to talk about. Uh, Let's go through a couple updates of expanded approvals uh, from the last couple weeks from the FDA. So the 1st, December 27th, Olaparib was approved for, quote, not quote, for maintenance of germline BRCA mutated pancreatic cancer. I say maintenance here because I really don't think it's maintenance. I think it's just switched to second line therapy. But this is from the Polo study. Uh, We've talked about it here. It's a much maligned study. Um, For those of you not familiar with it, these patients were on um, first-line chemo for pancreatic cancer. 80% of them were on Fulfurinox. So probably a pretty healthy group if they're all on, or most of them were on Fulfurinox. And they had to have been receiving this treatment for, for four months, basically, without progression. So they're on treatment, they are doing well, and they're randomized to either a Olaparib or placebo. So you have people who are doing well on chemo, and half, not half, because they were randomized, I think, three to two, but uh, you know, a third of patients just stop and the others go on to receive a lap rib, which makes sense if they do have deleterious germline BRCA mutations, probably some activity here for PARP inhibitors. Well, the primary endpoint is progression-free survival. You had people with metastatic disease. It's not like they all had complete responses. They just did not have disease progression. And some of them stopped treatment. And they progressed faster. So there was a PFS benefit for a lap rib. The overall survival Kaplan-Meyer curves are, are superimposable. They're the same. So it's approved... Uh, you know, uh, you know, you would have loved to have seen patients um, in a second-line setting, deleterious germline BRCA mutations randomized to a lap rib or second-line chemo with, say, Gemma-Brack, saying That's what you would really like to see. But it is now FDA-approved. Uh, and then finally, on January 8th, Pembrolizumab picked up its 1, 2, 3, 97th approved indication. And this is for BCG, unresponsive, high-risk, non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer. That's a mouthful. So BCG, first of all, is an old TB vaccine. Uh, It's a live attenuated vaccine and it's probably the first immunotherapy. So uh, it's a tuberculosis vaccine that we use to treat bladder cancer. So the idea here is you instill the BCG vaccine in the bladder causes a local inflammatory, uh, not inflammatory, but local immune response and then the bladder cancer can go away. And the way this usually works is somebody's got some blood in their urine they go in and do a, some cystology. They see some suspicious cells. They look at those. It looks like it's carcinoma in situ or non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. You give BCG every week for six weeks, uh, then wait another six weeks, analyze it again. If the disease is gone, uh, then you do maintenance every three weeks for 24 months. And that process has been shown to be better than just resection alone. So doing the BCG after resection, then BCG maintenance is mentioned to be better than just resection alone or even resection followed by intraparticular chemo. So immunotherapy works well for bladder cancer, uh, but not for everyone. So these are the the folks who they get the BCG and the disease um, comes back. They're not responsive to this. um, And they have this, this carcinoma inside you and they're not candidates for cystectomy. They're not candidates to have the whole bladder removed or they just don't want to do that. So 96 of them, this is the Keynote 57 study. 96, less than 100, uh, with BCG unresponsive, high-risk, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Receive pembrolizumab 200 milligrams every three weeks for 24 months, or they stop for disease progression or unacceptable toxicity. Primary uh, endpoint here was complete response rate. So 41% had a complete response rate, which for com- as far as uh, any response, that's good. But for a complete response, 41%, 41% is uh, is fairly robust. But again, no comparison to anything else Um, and uh, I think this is notable Um, you know it's a single center study not a single but a a single arm study uh, just looking at a surrogate endpoint Uh, so maybe that's not notable but there is a BCG shortage it'll be interesting to see if folks uh, start using this in place of BCG because they can't get BCG and I don't know if you have that uh, issue where you are. One other thing to think about potentially here with this approval is 19% of patients had hematuria, and that could be an artifact of this being uh, bladder cancer. Uh, you would like to have seen what maybe the placebo rate was uh, for this, uh, but that 19% rate of hematuria is higher than what you see in, in other uh, studies where pembrolizumab is used. So maybe that's a, a, an artifact of just the disease, or maybe it's the disease and the drug. Uh, we'll have to wait to see if there's a safety signal for that. Uh, 12 to 24 months down the road so thank you for listening uh, follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetna follow the podcast uh, at OncoFarmPod both on Twitter and Instagram uh, give us a nice 5 star rating review in the iTunes store and you can follow us on Apple Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify and until I talk to you again, remember doses matter